Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Little bit out of it, truth be told. Been uh, having some family visiting, and that's been very nice, but also a little bit overwhelming, especially because tomorrow morning at like 5 o'clock in the morning, we are getting on an airplane to go visit some of Lisa's family in Chicago. And on top of that, there's like a 100-plus degree heat wave going on. And uh, I got to tell you, frankly, the comics that we're covering this week and the next one have kind of broken my mind a little bit. You'll see. And then, just this morning, I found out that they discontinued the Choco Taco, which it turns out I have surprisingly complicated feelings about. I mean, for the most part, it's not entirely dissimilar to my feelings about my 20s, which is, in particularly enjoy them, but now that they're gone, I kind of miss them. But that's somewhat mitigated, because now that the Choco Taco is gone... I feel like there's now a vacuum in the culturally appropriated street food turned into an entirely unrelated but rhyming frozen novelty dessert world. So if you'd like to purchase my idea for the new Root Bureau Euro, patent pending, just send... $25,000 to tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Until the time of said purchase, the Rubiro Yor is the sole intellectual property of Tighten Up the Defense Enterprises. Now that we've got that bit of business out of the way, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by David Magadie. My friend Devin said I should listen and said I should write this. Now I am doing that, so here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, David. Ah, uh, before I get into the actual synopsis, I do want to give a little content warning. The comic book that we're covering today does briefly reference a sexual assault as well as some police violence, and so those topics do come up both in the synopsis and our discussion of this comic book. So, just wanted you to be prepared for that. New Titans, number 64, March 1990. Scourge. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Tom Grummet, inked by Al Vey, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Jonathan Peterson and Mike Carlin. New Titan Roll Call, Cyborg, Starfire, Jericho, Raven, Troya, Speedy, Beast Boy, and Deathstroke the Terminator. Also a tiny bit at the end with Nightwing and Tim Drake. Previously in the New Titans. 
Acrobatic adventure Nightwing was off hanging out with Batman and buying a circus, so he asked Cyborg to fill in as team leader, and Speedy to fill in as the team's resident non-superpowered member. This new Titans lineup was immediately put to the test as a mysterious creature had been attacking New York City's richos and biting and scratching them to death. The gang went looking for clues in the city sewers and were ambushed by a bunch of super-powerful human-sized rat monsters. Oh no! The rat monsters clawed up Troya and then ran away. The gang took Donna to the hospital, but the doctors said that she had a mysterious infection and was probably going to die. Raven ravened at her ailing teammate just as hard as she could, and eventually, Donna's condition stabilized. Later that night, Beast Boy was attending a fundraiser at a fancy lawyer's house in Connecticut when he spotted the gang's old enemy, Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke the Terminator, the super-powered assassin who uses 90% of his brain, but only 50% of his eyeballs. Slade had tried to murder the gang on several occasions, including one notable attempt which led to the death of a teenage girl the middle-aged mercenary had been sexually exploiting. But then he said he was going to stop doing murders, and the Titans decided that he was a cool and trustworthy guy. Beast Boy went to say hello to his new buddy, but got distracted when Slade attacked the party's host, Walter Lanier. The anamorphic adolescent got even more distracted when Walt made the arguably lateral transformation from a fancy Connecticut lawyer into a giant murderous rat monster. A big fight broke out, and when the dust settled, both Lanier and Deathstroke had disappeared. Gar headed to the Titan Tower and filled the team in on what had transpired. The gang figured they could use some help fighting the rat monsters, but for some reason they weren't entirely sure yet that they could trust Deathstroke. Then late that night, the monocular mercenary broke into Gar's bedroom, held a knife to his throat, and reiterated that he was a good guy now. So the next day, the Titans all decided they should team up with him. Slade took the gang to an abandoned warehouse that the rat monsters were using as their headquarters. As they were spying on the creatures through a skylight, Slade explained that now that he was a good guy, he wasn't doing murders for money anymore, and was mostly just smuggling guns and other contraband into the country. A few months ago, he had been hired to sneak the secret cure for AIDS and cancer into the U.S. so that it could be sold to billionaires. You know, like a good guy would do. Only he found out that the serum he had transported wasn't the secret cure for AIDS and cancer after all, and that the people who hired him were rat monsters who liked to drink people's blood. Also, if they gave the serum that Deathstroke had smuggled for them to someone after they drank their blood, then when that person died, they would come back to life as a zombie controlled by the leader of the rat monsters. As the Titans were still processing this bit of complicated exposition, they were ambushed by rat monsters, one of whom drank a whole lot of Raven's blood. Starfire blew up the rat monster with her magic space fire, then rushed Raven to the hospital. Meanwhile, the leader of the rat monsters, who looked more like Mumra before he called on the ancient spirits of evil than he did a rat monster, was hanging out in the library of a richo he had just murdered with two rat monsters and a guy who looked like an embryonic horse and didn't say anything. The Mumra-looking guy gave a little speech about how the rat monsters' numbers were growing and soon they would take over the planet, and also that everyone loves the psychosexual horror fiction of Clive Barker. Good to know. Back at the Star Labs hospital, Raven was rushed into surgery. Things were going well, until they weren't. 
One of the alleged surgeons working on Raven dumped a mysterious serum down the ailing Azerathian's throat, then turned into a bat monster. Jericho was the first titan on the scene. He tried to intervene, but the bat monster drank his blood, then dumped a second vial of serum down the throat of the mulleted mutant, before flying off into the night. Starfire gave chase, but the bat monster distracted the tempestuous Tamaranian by dropping a homeless guy off a roof. Coriander rescued the distressed bystander, but in the process of saving him, lost sight of her shape-shifting quarry. Back at the hospital, Gar stared in horror at his fallen comrades and informed the rest of the team that his good buddy Deathstroke had told him that there was no cure for the condition the rat monsters inflicted on their victims and that Raven and Joey's only reprieve from a life of mindless servitude might be death. Gadzooks! How will the Titans treat a condition that has no cure? Will there be any follow-up to the Mumra-looking guy's impromptu Clive Barker commercial? And, I'm a little confused, are the bad guys rat monsters, bat monsters, horse monsters, vampires, zombies, or mummies? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By curing it? Sort of. And... Yes, all of the above. There are also aliens, geologists, and possibly ancient Egyptian gods. After depositing the homeless bystander safely on the ground, Starfire flies off again in pursuit of the bat monster. At first, her search is fruitless, but then she sees a battered young woman lying in an alley. The enraged alien princess is like, Where did he go? The injured young woman gestures weakly in the direction her assailant fled. Starfire follows the woman's instructions and sees a silhouette of a figure running away. She sends a blast of magical space fire towards the fleeing shadow and collapses a wall on him. Triumphantly, Coriander moves in to collect the unconscious malefactor and drag him back to the hospital for questioning, but is surprised to find that the body lying under the rubble is not that of the bat monster she thought she had been chasing, but rather the body of a young black man. A few minutes later, the police arrive and Starfire has a chat with the Titans' police liaison, Captain Hall. Hall explains that just before Starfire had gotten there, the young man had sexually assaulted the woman in the alley. Starfire feels bad about accidentally using her powers to injure a non-superpowered human. Captain Hall takes her aside and is like, Look, sooner or later every cop accidentally shoots the wrong person in the back. It's inevitable. Well, this guy's gonna be okay, and also, he's a piece of shit, so don't worry about it. In the future, try to be a little bit more careful, but don't get too in your head about it. I mean, if we fired every police officer who shot the wrong person in the back as they were running away, then we might never shoot anybody in the back as they were running away. And what kind of police force would that be? Now, go take a nap or something. Oof. Meanwhile, back at the hospital... Raven wakes up. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because her eyeballs are totally black, which is not usually a great sign about the Azerathian empath's mental state. Raven addresses Beast Boy, Cyborg, Speedy, and Dr. Sarah Charles, and is like, You are inferior life forms and must be subjugated or destroyed! Cyborg is like, Are you 
just talking about Speedy and Beast Boy, or do you mean all of us? Raven is like, all of you. Cyborg is like, then that's ridiculous. You're clearly being controlled by the rat, bat, horse, vampire, mummy monsters. Raven is like, yeah, but they're totally cool. And things will be way better once I help them conquer the planet. Now shut up and let me take over your mind. Raven uses her nonsense powers to mess with Vic's brain. But after a moment of disorientation, the mostly molybdenum marvel powers through and starts fighting back. Raven is unprepared for the level of resistance Vic offers, and is momentarily taken aback. Beast Boy takes advantage of her surprise, and is able to restrain Raven just long enough for Sarah to inject the out-of-control enchantress with a powerful sedative. As she starts to pass out, Speedy shoots a trick arrow which ties the sleepy sorceress up. Thank goodness he was here. Once Raven is safely snoozing, Speedy is like, so, I guess we're gonna have to kill her, right? Want me to start looking for a pointy arrow? I think I might have one of those somewhere. Or maybe if I just use a boxing glove arrow that's big enough. As the apparently assassination ambivalent archer rummages around in his quiver, a quavering voice from just off panel is like, Why don't you hold off on the boxing glove arrow for now, Speedy? There's still one chance that we might save her. Speedy tries not to look too disappointed. Meanwhile, in an office building downtown, Deathstroke has tied a guy up and is hanging him upside down from the ceiling. The depth perception deficient do-gooder toys absentmindedly with one of his fancy guns, and is like, Here's the deal, Senator. I know you're in league with the rat monsters, or whatever the fuck they are, and I want you to tell me where their secret lair is. I'm a mean, creepy jerk, and I like the way human blood smells. So if you don't tell me, I'm going to shoot you a bunch of times. The senator is like, I'll never tell you shit. We're going to destroy all of you. Deathstroke is like, well, what if I shoot off your wiener? The senator is like, oh, that secret base. Yeah, no problem. Just let me down from here and I'll, I'll draw you a map. Down in the rat monster or whatever's secret underground lair, the mumra-looking guy is pacing back and forth in front of a giant round thing that has a huge sheet draped over it. One of the rat monsters is like, Hey, Scourge, we should probably be overconfident, right? The mumra-looking guy, who I guess is named Scourge, is like, No, we shouldn't be overconfident. The rat monster is like, Oh, okay, good talk. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Donna has stumbled out of the hospital bed. It was she who had mentioned from off-panel that Speedy's proposed raven murder might be a tad bit premature. The ailing Amazon is like, I got bit by the rat monsters and then raven made me better, so maybe we could use some of my blood to make a cure for her and Joey. Cyborg is like, no way, that's silly, go back to bed. Donna's husband, Terry Long, is like, that's what I told her. But Dr. Sarah Charles is like, wait a minute, use science to make a medicine that cures disease? Why, that's so crazy, it just might work. Donna is like, cool. Then she passes out. Across town, 
Deathstroke smashes through the window of a dilapidated apartment and needlessly threatens the destitute man who is clearly squatting there. The unnecessarily antagonistic former assassin bashes his way through one of the apartment's thin plaster walls, revealing a shaft that leads to a subterranean lair. After Kool-Aid manning his way through first a window and then a wall, Deathstroke sneaks down the tunnel on his tippy toes and sees that Scourge and his underlings are scurrying around and finalizing their plans. He's about to climb back out of the fortress and call the Titans for backup, but the rat monsters smell that an intruder is among them and attack the sporadically stealthy Spelunker. The subterranean scuffle that ensues is a short one. Deathstroke fights vigorously but is hopelessly outnumbered and soon finds himself pinnated up in a similar manner to the unlucky senator from a few pages ago. Scourge stands under his voluntarily inverted captive and gloats. The robed and bandaged supervillain sarcastically thanks Deathstroke for helping smuggle the serum into the country. Then he's like, Now, seeing as I have you tied up and I am a supervillain, how about I treat you to an exposition dump? Deathstroke is hardly in a position to refuse, so Scourge is like, a few thousand years ago, there was a race of alien shapeshifters who came to this planet. They could take on the appearances of animals, so people worshipped them. That's why pictures of ancient Egyptian gods all have animal heads. After a while, they decided that this planet was bullshit, so they fucked off back to space. Only one of their spaceships crashed for some reason and was buried in the desert in the not-at-all-lazily-named fictional Middle Eastern country of Karak. Then, six years ago, me and a crew of eleven other geologists were out looking for oil in the Karaki desert when we noticed that there was a shit-ton of radiation coming from somewhere nearby. We were supposed to be looking for oil, but we were like, Fuck it! Uranium's nice, too! Let's dig that up! Only it turned out not to be uranium, but a giant alien spaceship, which I'm standing in front of right now. We started poking around and found that the bodies of the crew of animal-looking alien monsters were in pretty good shape considering how long they'd been dead. So we did what any team of oil-hunting geologists would do. We performed an alien autopsy. Deathstroke, you may as well stop struggling to free yourself. If you do manage to get out of those ropes, we're just going to kill you. Now, where was I? Deathstroke is like, You and your 12-person crew of oil-hunting geologists had just excavated a several-thousand-year-old spacecraft and performed an alien autopsy. Scourge is like, All right, now here's where shit gets weird. For some reason, I decided that I needed to take some of the alien blood and inject it into my veins. So I did. Then I died. But three days later, I rose from the dead and found that I had turned into this. Scourge takes the bandages off his face and removes his hood and reveals that he has a weird bumpy green head with an alien face and an elongated jaw. Deathstroke is like, Wait, why don't you have an animal head like the other aliens? Scourge is like, The same reason I injected that blood into my veins, I guess. Deathstroke is like, So no reason? Scourge is like, Pretty much. 
Anyway, I jammed alien blood into the rest of my geologist buddies, and they all turned into rat monsters, except for one guy who's a bat and another guy who's a horse monster, I think. Now we all hate humans, and we drink their blood and want to take over the world. Oh, also we made a serum that makes people zombies or something. So, do you want us to make you an alien zombie rat monster or whatever? Deathstroke is like, no way, fuck you. Scourge is like, fair enough, I guess it's time to murder you. He goes to bite Slade with his weird, underbitey alien fangs, but just then, the Titans Kool-Aid man their way into the cave and start punching alien geologist rat vampires or whatever. Starfire is like, don't try to stop me from killing these guys, Cyborg. Cyborg is like, okay. Starfire is like, I mean it, I'm going to kill them. Cyborg is like, yeah, good, hope you do. Starfire is like, oh, well, all right then. She blasts Scourge with a huge torrent of magic space fire and incinerates him until only his skeleton remains. Dang. Scourge's skeleton is like, is that all you've got? Seriously? As Coriander keeps blasting away at Scourge's surprisingly frisky skeleton, the rest of the Titans free their good buddy Deathstroke and beat up the rest of the whatevers. Eventually, by using up her final reserves of magical space fire energy, Starfire manages to double superkill Scourge's skeleton. Exhausted, she collapses to the ground. One of the rat monsters, let's say Walt Lanier probably, leaps at her from behind to avenge his fallen leader. But Deathstroke kills him with a blast from his laser staff thingy. Take that, probably Walt Lanier. The next day, the doctors at Star Labs jab Raven and Joey with the rat monster cure that they were able to make from Donna's blood. Dr. Charles is like, It'll take a few days for them to recover, but they're gonna be just fine. The Titans leave their injured teammates to convalesce. Soon after the door closes, Raven opens her eyes. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because once again, Raven's eyeballs are totally black. Well, shit. Across town at Dick Grayson's apartment, the doorbell rings. Dick hops out of the shower, throws on a robe, and answers the door. It's Tim Drake, the kid who tracked Dick down at his recently purchased circus and convinced him to go back to Gotham for a while and help Batman out. Tim is like, Hi, Bruce said I could be Robin now. Neat, huh? So I thought to myself, if you're gonna learn to be a sidekick, you need Dick. Dick is like, Okay, well lesson one is, you're gonna need to start paying more attention to how you phrase things. To be continued. Joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, what ad campaign has the mascot that you have found most disturbing? Man, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. When I was a kid, I was freaked out pretty good by the Where's the Beef Lady. Oh, really? Yeah, the way that the Where's the Beef Lady would interrogate the beef purveyors, I guess, seemed... <laughs> A little harsh it absolutely was i think that's a very good answer why thank you how about you did you have a disturbing mascot 
There are a few, some that I remember and some that I only learned about recently. In the latter camp, I don't know if I've ever showed you pictures of the 70s Hamburglar. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have. Creepy. That guy's creepy as fuck. He looks like Bob from Twin Peaks and is terrifying. Mm -hmm. For ones that I actually encountered in the wild and remember, there was a toe fungus ad where it shows this little cartoon goblin looking thing prying up somebody's toenail and hopping under it to spread fungus that always seemed to come on when I was eating something and is just the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. And that is maybe tied, maybe slightly beating out another commercial pitch man that actually will come up later in this comic book. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I am all pins and needles. Well, then let's talk about this comic book. Okay, so let's get right down to it. In the last issue, there was a part where the Mumra-looking guy, who in this issue we find out is named Scourge, has just killed a richo and gives a kind of impromptu ad for Clive Barker. Right. Yeah, one of his underlings is like, weird that a guy this rich and cultured would read Clive Barker, and Scourge says more or less, Silence, fool! Everyone loves Clive Barker. His horror fiction is the greatest. It's the great equalizer. I thought that seemed incongruous at the time. I still do. But it did not prepare me for this fold-out ad for Clive Barker's Nightbreed that is in this comic. I know you read the digital version, so this is the first time you're seeing it. Product placement. Huge product placement. Dang. It is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trading card sized fold out that is double sided, featuring characters from the upcoming film Nightbreed, starring David Cronenberg. Oh, no shit. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I was telling you about. Whoa. But where that ties into TV Pitchmen is this guy. There's a character in it. I have not seen the movie, but there is a picture of him. Very disturbing looking guy, pointy head pointy chin, character named Kinski. Mm. Besides its many supernatural members, the tribe of the Nightbreed embraces creatures upon whom nature has played horrible tricks. Kinski is such a man. His face is shaped like a crescent moon, his many knives the same. Like his knives, he's sharp, slick, and when the moon is full, deadly. No. So the TV pitchman that that reminds me of is, of course, Mac Tonight. Do you remember this guy? That's a moon thing with sunglasses? Yes, it is a crescent moon-headed man with sunglasses who was the pitchman for McDonald's more adult menu. Like, not porno menu, <laughs> but like, I don't know, maybe it had a tomato on it or something. Uh-huh. Like, that would only be served, what, like after 5 p.m.? Yeah, probably. Okay. And that guy always creeped me the fuck out. Did he have jeans and a leather jacket? No, he had a suit. He was like a crooner. Like, he was a dude wearing a suit with a giant moon for a head who sang a parody of Mac the Knife that was Mac Tonight. Which, I feel like this Kinski character has to be inspired by him. Moon-shaped face is a blade purveyor like Mac the Knife, which is a song about a serial killer Mm -hmm. uh, that was inspired by the Three Penny Opera uh, by Bertolt Brecht. That 
Pitchman was just horrifying, Mac, tonight. Mm -hmm. And, I did not know this, was played by Doug Jones, who has gone on to play a ton of movie monsters, probably most notably the Fishman from The Shape of Water. No kidding. Yeah. That seems an odd, I don't know, not typecasting, but like an odd area of focus. It's like I am only going to play the costumed monster guys. Yeah, apparently he has, like, a background in mime work, so it's kind of like an Andy Circus type thing, where he specializes in a certain type of movement and is also very thin but pretty muscular, so can squeeze into some suits that other people might not be able to. Wow. So it kind of makes sense. He's a talented actor. But, uh, yeah, he played a number of horrifying creations, a lot of them in Guillermo del Toro movies, Mm -hmm. and a horrifying creation of... The McDonald's Corporation. Wow. So now that we get that little bit of Clive Barker minutia out of the way, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I think I may need to retract my earlier statement of optimism about it seemed like this was going somewhere because they did kind of try and wrap it up and put a bow on it by explaining things that I'm sure we're about to jump in and talk about, but I didn't care for it. It was fucking nonsense. It was like they just kept adding details and making it more complicated in hopes that that would make us not notice that it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it reminds me of this report that I sometimes need to generate at work, where I'm just gonna put all of the charts, (laughs) right? Yeah, if I put enough of these charts, then no one will read any of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is very much what the exposition in this issue felt like. It is just too much. The explanation that makes the previously overly complicated issue attempt to make sense involves dead aliens with telepathic blood who are also actually Egyptian gods, which is why 12 geologists turned into giant rats when one of them injected his blood into them, except for that one guy turned into an alien-looking alien, even though all of the aliens that he took the blood out of were animal-headed humanoids that people thought were Egyptian gods, and then their spaceship crashed when they were taking off for no apparent reason. It wasn't like this spaceship got shot down or something because, you know... Earth was still in a ancient Egypt at the best level of technology. There's no reason why the other aliens couldn't have gone back for these aliens. None of it makes any goddamn sense. It really was like, well, if I just keep saying things, then eventually that makes a conclusion, right? Yeah, I feel like anytime you need to preface a pivotal moment in a story that causes the whole thing to happen, such as injecting yourself with 3,000-year-old shape-changing alien blood, with a statement like, and for reasons that nobody can explain, I have done a thing. Yeah. Although, honestly, I would have been happier if there was more just, and for reasons we don't understand, I did a thing, rather than when they do try to explain why things happen, and it doesn't connect to anything that happened previously. It became a source of really, really a lot of frustration for me. Which, honestly, made me question myself a little bit. because. When we first started covering Teen Titans comics, we were reading Bob Haney comics. And those things, 
overly complicated nonsense that didn't connect to previous issues, and I loved them. And so, what's the difference? I think for me, it comes down to those issues were fun. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're gonna be nonsense, be fun nonsense. And this issue takes itself too seriously to be fun. Which brings me to my other big problem with this issue. This comic is not good enough to deal with a topic like sexual assault. Mm. There is a very brief segment where Starfire is chasing one of the aliens who turned into a bat for no goddamn reason, and she loses him and picks up the trail of a different criminal and shoots him with her starbolt, and a wall falls on him, and then it turns out it was a human, and the woman who had indicated that she had been attacked, it points out that she had been raped. This comic is not a good enough comic book to deal with a topic like that in a sensitive way, and so it should not be dealing with it at all. It reminds me, I went through a big period where I watched a lot of Walker, Texas Ranger, mm -hmm. and that show was big on doing that. Just fighting way outside of its weight class in terms of the topics that it was tackling. And sometimes it would swing so big that it was hilarious, but way more often it would come across as just a big disconnect in the type of entertainment it thought it was purveying and the type it actually was. And that is what a lot of this comic book felt to me. Starfire ends up having a conversation with Police Captain Hall, who is a character I generally like, but basically he's like, so, you shot a fleeing suspect in the back, huh? Join the club. All police officers do that at some point or another. You just gotta get over it. Plus, he was a bad guy, even though, you know, we haven't convicted or done any legwork on this. Clearly, he's guilty, so it's fine that you shot him. Yep, cops make mistakes. I mean, that's basically what... That's what he says. That's what he yeah. says. And that she is now herself in that category. So, look! You're going to kill some people by shooting at fleeing suspects. What would the alternative be, though? Not to shoot anybody in the back? Come on. Don't let it get to you. Yup, because you need to be out there doing good work like you are. So, I mean, the Haney books don't contain that kind of stuff. I think that's one reason why those sit better with me than this. Although the Haney books would occasionally tackle some kind of darker subject matter in the form of racism, and would usually handle it pretty ineptly. But I think the other reason that I may be unfairly judging these books is because when I read a comic book from the 60s, I go into it with a different level of expectations. I think of those as being from a long time ago, and I expect them to be silly or goofy or not to know how to handle topics like that. This comic book, and I wonder if newer readers feel differently about this stuff, because to me, this comic book is from the era when I was reading comic books. So when I read a comic book from this era, I don't expect it to be dated in a way that I can find kind of campy or, you know, excusable. I was reading comics at this, so I'm like, no, this will just be a good comic book. But at this point, this comic book is from like, what, almost 30 years ago. Yep. So. I should maybe adjust my expectations because, you know, there was just goofy shit then. But I don't think of, like, 90s shit as being fun in the way that I do 60s shit. And I wonder if newer readers feel differently about that. 
I think it's probably has something to do with that. It was part of our experiences, kids mm -hmm. consuming that sort of media. It was like when I heard a Nirvana song on the classic rock station the other day. I was like, that mm. can't be right. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, no, that was 30 yeah. Yeah. Something years ago, I guess that. Ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. I think the overly complicated nature of what is happening in this book and the fact that details don't quite match up is exacerbated by what seem like either some confusing storytelling in terms of the art or perhaps some miscommunications between the artist and the writer. I think we got used to there being a certain level of rapport between Wolfman and his artist, whether it be Eduardo Barreto or George Perez or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And I don't think he has that with Tom Grummet yet. So, well, Grummet's art is beautiful. The storytelling isn't always seamless. And maybe it'll get there. But there are a number of pages where I just couldn't quite tell what was happening. I think the most notable one being the scene at the end when Starfire is blowing up Scourge. She is blasting him with all of her powers, and I think she's supposed to be exploding him. But... In the scene where he explodes, it looks like the blast is coming from somewhere else. And I don't think that's supposed to be Deathstroke. Deathstroke does the follow-up blast of the character who's sneaking up on Starfire after Starfire has blown up that guy. But in that panel, it looks like she is a bystander to the explosion. And it's really difficult to tell what's happening, and I feel like there were a few panels like that. And then there's the follow-up to that, where it's the aftermath of the big fight. They've killed Scourge. Deathstroke has shot the other rat monster who's attacking Starfire. And then they all stand around and have a conversation as the alien rat monsters or bat monster or whatever are just kind of hanging out. And it doesn't make any sense that that would be happening, especially because the Titans have made it clear at that point that they feel that the way to deal with these people is to kill them all. Which also doesn't quite make sense because the reason they have to kill them all is because there's no cure for what they are. Whereas, by that point in the comic book, there is a potential cure. So they don't have to kill those guys. They could cure them with Donna's blood, but they can't, and I don't fucking get it. I was also confused and a little bit disturbed by that. Especially the Batmonster guy was a super bad mm -hmm. guy in the previous issue and very powerful. And the only justification I could think of was one of those, well, you killed the leader, so the other guys are just kind of mindlessly milling around. But it doesn't really play. It doesn't play that way because you see the first thing that happens after they have killed the leader is the next guy in charge attacks Starfire and Deathstroke has to kill him. Yeah, so you gotta kill number one and number two right? for the that troops to... That's why the two rat monsters in charge never fly on the same airplane. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know, man. I really didn't like this comic book. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Also, I get the feeling that we're going to be seeing more of Deathstroke as a ancillary member of the team. I hope that's not the case, but it seems to be headed that way, maybe? Yeah, it kind of does. He's almost like a team mentor to them. And he is gross in this issue, as often he is. I do not like him. He is one of two characters in this book who sets up a human pinata as a torture device and means of extracting information. He is the first one to do that. And then we see Scourge 
doing it later to him. And I feel that is either one too many or one too few human pinatas to be in an issue. If there's three, then it's like, oh, this is just a running thing. I guess everybody's doing human pinatas. But if you're supposed to believe that one guy is a good guy for doing a human pinata, and then the other guy who's the worst guy is a bad guy for doing a human pinata, then it just is confusing. You think? I do. Good. I passed your little test. You did. <laughs> Hooray. What do you think's going on with Black Eyeball Raven at the end of the book? Is that just the stinger at the end? I had predicted, I believe, that the formula for a multi-part Marv Wolfman arc of this era is very strong opening book where it hints at some things and promises you that you will find out what's going on. Follow-up book with way too many pieces on the board. And then conclusion where it addresses some of those pieces on the board, completely discards others, and then you get a stinger at the end that is a, and that's the end of that. Or is it? Do you think the Black Eye Raven is just an example of the, or is it? And do you think there will be any follow-up to it? Yes, and I don't know. Yeah. I actually liked that because I was kind of annoyed at how perfect of a bow was placed on the alien Egyptian god shape-shifting bad guys. Like, it was kind of too perfect to be like, all right, we, we, we got the Donna Blood antidote, all good. But, it's like, where are you going to go with it? If it does end without Raven opening her eyes and having them be black eyeballs and like, oh, I guess there might be some ramifications for this, then it is 100% a what-the-fuck-was-the-point-of-this story, which you kind of get anyway. This was a story arc that, yes, very strong premise, opening it up. And then for the two issues that followed, so many ingredients, so little flavor. It seems like this is going through a lot of work to establish a new villain for the Titans, but then he dies at the end of it, and all of his cronies are wiped out as well. So I like the idea that maybe there was some point to all of this, but I still don't know what that point would be. Yeah, I do suspect we're going to see Raven grapple with it for a while, kind of like the Trigon stuff. I think they like to do that with Raven. They do. That is kind of their go-to with her. Mm -hmm. I will say that the fight scene between her and Cyborg was really well done, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed him struggling through it, even if that doesn't necessarily make sense with the way Raven's powers have been portrayed in the past. I thought it was very visually interesting, the way that the fight went, and... I liked the kind of being controlled, but kind of thinking for herself version of Raven that we got during that. I thought that was pretty good. I like that we now know if you have Raven troubles, you just grab her cape and kind of make a little Raven burrito. That's what Cyborg did. Well, I, I think the sedatives did a lot of the heavy lifting with that, too. That was a nice character moment for Sarah. Mm -hmm. You know who it was not a nice character moment for? Speedy. Well, hey, you know, it's a... Uh, yeah, there's no funny way to, <laughs> to say that he just jumped to the conclusion that he had to kill his friend. Yeah, and that seemed really incongruous with the storyline that it seems like it would have made sense to tell for Speedy in this arc and where it seemed like it was going. You get the first issue of it, 
he says, I swear I'm not going to be a fuck-up anymore. Has a big epiphany moment. Second issue, he is a fuck-up. He fucks up a lot of shit in that issue. Like, not just from a subjective point of view, like us being like, oh, it seems like he's being a real dick hitting on Starfire, but he is useless in all of the battles that he's in and makes what are objectively mistakes that make things harder for his teammates. So for the third issue of it, it seems like now it's time for him to redeem himself and make good on his promise to not be a fuck-up anymore, but he doesn't. He is at best neutral in this issue, and his one contribution is, well, looks like we're gonna have to murder Raven, huh? And then Donna stumbles out of her hospital bed and is like, no, don't. Oh, he does tie Raven up with a not-tying arrow. Yeah, that's not much for a moment of redemption, though, especially as she had already been sedated all to hell at that point. Not a strong showing. No. There was also just a weird, from a writing standpoint, seemed like kind of lazy moment where Gar inserts some meta-narrative into a fight scene that he's doing, where Cyborg is being ganged up on by a bunch of the rat creatures, who, again, does not make sense that they would all be rat creatures if they were injected with alien blood that turns them into characters that have the heads of Egyptian gods or whatever. Or alien-looking guys like the original guy from the group is. Anyway, they're all ganging up on Cyborg. Cyborg tosses them off of him. And Gar, as he is fighting, one of them says, Why is it the bad guys always have to gang up on one poor little hero? Well, I guess it's supposed to make us look better when we're overwhelmed and still smash you all into the ground. Do you think that was like maybe some confusion where Marv Wolfman accidentally transcribed his notes to self while he was writing the book and just accidentally made that dialogue instead? No, I I read it as a a joke with the reader. Yeah, like just a little lampshading thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I wasn't already annoyed with this comic book, I would have liked that better. It bothered me in this, but I think that may have just been because I was already like, fuck this comic book. Yeah, and also that it came from Gar. That's true, who has been doing better in recent episodes, and not so much in this one. So round, so firm, so gross. Uh, It's not even the first time he has used a Lucky Strike ad slogan to objectify Coriander. If you're gonna be a gross, overly sexualizing of your friends and teammates little fucking creep, at least be an original one. That's too much to ask. It is, apparently. It was such a disappointment. And that was also, that took place in the same scene where he's saying that as there are still these alien monsters milling about the crime scene being like, so, um, you're gonna murder us now? Or, yeah, guess we'll just hang out here until we get murdered. So do we go over there or, uh, got a smoke or something? You, You want to call it a tie? I'm sorry, I know I put this aside already, but the physiology of these aliens and the logistics of these aliens don't make any sense. Last issue, you get Scourge saying, What are our numbers? 10? 20? Soon we will be thousands. And then he does his weird slurring thing where he tries to make multiple T's at the end of a word of thing. 
So he doesn't know if there's 10 or 20 of them at that point. This issue, we find out you started off with 12 of them. At that point, he's saying, and our numbers are doubling daily. There were 12 of you six years ago. If your numbers are doubling daily, I'm not a mathematician, but I gotta believe there'd be more than 20 of you at this point. Yeah, that was a thing that did not add up. And, and another thing was when the, the human geologist that becomes the scourge is inexplicably injecting himself with the alien blood, he's commenting on it that yeah, it's like really, it's more like a gel. It's really viscous and it's blue. Like that was weird. Mm -hmm. They had just said that that, that spaceship crashed 3000 years ago. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe these guys are like extra well-preserved or something, but they would have just been like dusty skeletons. You'd right? think. Not only that, but after he says that, he then says, and then I died for three days, after which I was resurrected. Like, I don't know, vampires? Or Lazarus? Hmm. What character was dead for three days and then was resurrected? Like, I don't know, man, but I sure could go for some peeps. <laughs> yeah. They're clearly setting up a Jesus analogy and then not saying that one. Because, okay, sorry, but first of all, Lazarus, dead for four days. Vampires, come back after one day. If you want to set him up as an analogy for Jesus, that's a creepy thing to do. But just go ahead and fucking do it if you're going to. Don't, don't give me that fucking Lazarus shit. Also, Conan the Barbarian in the movie, but that's because that was written by Oliver Stone who always has to have a Christ figure, and that was clearly what he was doing with Conan the Barbarian in that movie. Crucified, mm -hmm. dies, comes back to life three days later. Yeah. You're setting up a Christ figure. I don't know what the point is of making Scourge a Christ figure. I think that was just some, like, extra sprinkles. There were so many extra sprinkles, though. This is all extra sprinkles, no ice cream. Uh, and also the sprinkles are made of rat turds. It already tastes like shit. Let's throw some more <laughs> on it. Also, why are they, like, we clearly saw that the characters turn into not even, like, rat-headed humanoids, but, like, full rats. They're just human-sized rats in the first two issues. Why would most of them turn into rats if they're animal-headed Egyptian gods, or the inspiration of them, which we see depicted in this story? It, it just doesn't follow. It is concluding a story that it didn't set up and just adding extra shit to it. So, it sounds like you didn't like this one very much. And here's another thing that doesn't make sense. As he is about to kill Deathstroke the Terminator, he's got his human pinata set up. He's like, hey, Deathstroke, do you want to be one of us guys and have to do my bidding? Wouldn't that be funny? And Deathstroke says, go to hell. Scourge says, I've already been there, and now you will go there too. Where are you bringing hell into this from? He can't make up whether he wants to be science fiction or horror. And he hasn't been to hell. I think he's had a bad week. Uh, do you think that's what he's implying? I had a really bad week. It's, yeah. been, it's been hell week. Okay, maybe. Here's Look, what's I don't even know if there's 12 of us or 144 <laughs> of us or whatever. Okay, man? <laughs> Just, I can't. I'm bad at math, all right? Here's what I'm guessing. I'm also maybe. Jesus. <laughs> here's what I'm guessing. He's saying that there's going to be some hazing involved, involved once Deathstroke is newly one of the rat monsters. Uh, He's like, yeah, we did a Hell Week thing. Mm. I had to go through my initiation. You have to go through yours. Yep. Get the uh, half gallon of Midori and the 
stepladder, some shot glasses. Uh huh, and you have to wear a diaper all week. Oh boy, you're gonna hate this, Slade. Oh man, I wish we were good artists because <laughs> I would like to do an alternate ending <laughs> where that happens. Where, yeah, he has to pledge to the space alien rat monster frat. Yep. That'd be pretty good. I mean, I'm opposed to hazing, but I am in favor of uh, Deathstroke getting hazed. Oh, yeah. I'm torn on shooting senators in the dick. Because <laughs> you do see he was about to do that. He's got the uh, senator who is in league with the alien rat monsters hanging up in his human pinata. And he gives a little speech. It is completely unclear whether he is being serious, whether he is bluffing, whether he is trying to intimidate the senator. But he talks about how much he loves the smell of blood, specifically human blood. Maybe I'm a weird, creepy pervert like that. Fresh human blood. What's right. That? No, he doesn't want stale yeah, human he's blood. Not... That stuff gets all gummy. Yeah. Ugh. Gross. Oh, he's so disgusting and irresponsible because. When he's scaring the senator by shooting near him and shooting him in the arm and threatening to shoot his ding-dong off, mm -hmm. he's putting all kinds of holes in the ceiling of what is ostensibly a, a, a several-story structure yeah. full of other people. It is unclear what kind of weapon he is using, though. I don't know if that thing's going to go through walls, because most guns that I have heard, and frankly, I don't live in a great neighborhood, so I have heard a fair amount of gunfire in the past few weeks. None of those gunshots have made the noise. Oh, he's got a he's got a suppressor. Okay, even if you've got a silencer, it would start with a plosive. It would be a softer plosive, maybe one that would have a lowercase letter. But this is yeah, it would be a. This is just. Well, he is Deathstroke the Terminator. You know, he's got the best of everything. Oh yeah, because he smuggled into his country. Because now that he's a good guy, all he does is smuggle weapons into the United States and. Suppress the cure for AIDS and cancer. I thought it was medicine. <laughs> Typical good guy stuff. Hey. <laughs> just, you know. Why do I talk like this? Good, I don't even know. <laughs> just good guys being good guys. Hey. You know, we always uh, hoard the cure for AIDS and cancer and give it to billionaires. Hey. Am I right, Beast Boy? Beast Boy's probably like, yeah! <laughs> we do that all the time! <laughs> No, it's uh, he's got a very powerful pistol of some sort that doesn't make plosives because he's Deathstroke the Terminator. I feel like if it doesn't make plosives, maybe it wouldn't penetrate the wall. So maybe... I don't like your being an apologist for Deathstroke here, Hub. <laughs> okay, you're right. I'm going I'm to shame you into agreeing with me. No, you're right. He's probably killing a lot of innocent bystanders in nearby apartments. He's also a real turd when he uh, breaks into the apartment that the senator told him about that has this secret access to the lair that you have to break through plaster to get to. Like, if it's a secret passage, you wouldn't think they would finish walling it off. There would be some kind of a door or something. So this is actually becoming a pet peeve of mine, is unnecessary... It's not defenestration if you're swinging into a window, but whatever that's called is a way Interfenestration? of... Interfenestration? I don't know, man, but is a way of entering a room. I think if you're entering a room by breaking through a window, it would be refenestration. Well, that's a good word, but I'm still mad at it. It's irresponsible. It's wasteful. Somebody's going to have to clean up all that broken glass. And it's dangerous. Yeah. You're going to walk on that. Bad move. 
Finley recently Kool-Aid manned his way through the screen door. There was a raccoon outside, and he has never done anything like that. Normally, even the idea of a door is enough to stop him. Like, he will often, like, stand in a doorway and bark rather than go through it. But he went right through the screen door and treed that raccoon, and now we don't have a screen door anymore. And I'm opposed to that, too. But it was just screens, so it didn't make broken glass everywhere. Yeah, but he's got the opposite thing of Deathstroke because he can Kool-Aid Man out, but then once he's outside, I just experienced him sitting there and barking at the hole that he made in the screen because he didn't want to come back the other way. Well, he's no Deathstroke the Terminator. Well, thank goodness for that. He's a good boy. Yeah, he is a good boy. Yeah. Well, Corey, there's a shitload more about this comic book that doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense and pisses me off. But I think we're going to get to most of it in the minutia. Are you ready to move into the minutia? Let's do it. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Whoa, Corey. Uh See how I just turned that, flip that table over? Up is down. Down is up. Yeah, it's trying to lighten your load. Well, I appreciate that, Corey. Uh You don't know what a burden it's been me thanking Rick all these years. I'm still mad at him about the Corey Eaton Farts thing, but it's it's a good song. That's very big of you. I'm a big man. That's not true. I'm a regular sized man. You're a big man of the heart. Thank you. So big man. <laughs> what category do you feel like starting off with? Oh shit. How about uh one of the highlights of the issue, the artwork? Not bad. Sure. Yeah, like I said, the storytelling doesn't always flow, but the individual panels have some very beautifully done art. What was your favorite panel? I think my absolute favorite was on page six. I called it Unraveling Cyborg. I had the same choice as mine. I called it Vic's Bad Dream. Mm. Because it is, uh, yeah, it is the result of Raven fucking with his brain. He believes that his body is unraveling its mechanical parts and they're drifting away from him it is really cool looking it is very surreal the robotic equivalent of body horror and really nicely done oh man can you imagine like experiencing something like that and being able to keep your shit together it is very impressive it does make vic seem much more heroic and in sequences like that where there is an element of the surreal because Raven is exercising her powers, it has a built-in excuse to give you a little bit more leeway if the fight choreography or the geometry of the fight scene doesn't quite work. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful scene. Thank you. Oh, I didn't realize you had done that. No, I can't I... see so good. Is that Tom Grumman over there? Hey. No, I, did. <laughs> I was uh, thanking you for thanking me for the suggestion that you also had. Well, you're welcome. I guess so. I'm conf- <laughs> This is a confusing comic hub, okay? And you're right. I'm sorry. Accepted. Did you have any backup panels you wanted to talk about? I did. I really also liked the classic attack panel when all of the team is running towards the viewer. That was on page 19. Yeah, it's pretty good. There's a very nicely drawn beast boy as a cheetah leaping towards us. Looks pretty ferocious. Not bad. I really did enjoy the scene where Scourge's flaming skeleton is standing over Starfire and about to attack her. 
It's just a cool-looking buff skeleton. That's a tough look to pull off. It's just, it makes me so fucking mad because it's it's like, okay, are you a shapeshifter? Are you an alien? Are you an Egyptian god? Or you're just a skeleton by the force of your will, therefore you go? I don't know. Yeah, at that point, like, okay, he gets his alien powers because he injected himself with alien blood, but he doesn't have any blood at that point. Mm -hmm. So how's he doing that shit? Also, here's another thing. His whole crew is at the time presumably geologists or something. They're looking for oil. They realize pretty early on there's a lot of radiation, so they're like, well, maybe it's uranium. Let's dig that up instead. Well, it seems like you'd maybe get a different crew to do that. Then you find out that it's a giant alien spaceship. Oh, well, let's dig that up instead. Okay, even putting all of that aside, they're all geologists. The one of these guys that we meet before is a fancy lawyer. After he became a rat man, did he go and get his fucking law degree? What's going on with Walt Wayne here? I don't know, but, like, you're hanging out with your buddies, and you discover an alien spaceship, aren't you gonna be like, Hey guys, I got an idea. You wanna go shoot up some alien blood, huh? <laughs> and then go to law school? <laughs> what else are you gonna do? I mean, come on. Corey, is that just where lawyers come from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I know any real ones. I know a couple. I don't think they shot up alien blood, but... Probably oh, not. Maybe, when they were younger. I don't think so, otherwise they'd be half rat. Or maybe they would be half bat monster, maybe they'd be embryonic horses, or maybe they'd be Egyptian gods. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Nobody knows. Anubis. Yeah. How come none of these guys look like fucking Anubis? Or, uh... Or Bast. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some other names. Uh, Ra. Harwet? Harwet? What's the hippo one? Oh, yeah, from Moon Knight? Yeah. Yeah, or or Horus. Or, uh-huh. like, there's no bird-headed guys here, huh? Yeah, that's true. Nobody's got an ibis head here. Where's the birds? Yeah, how come none of these fuckers are measuring hearts against feathers, huh? What? You know, you gotta make your heart balance with a feather. You can't go to, um... Oh, Moon Knight stuff. Yeah, but also ancient Egypt stuff. Mm, pretty sure that was on Moon Knight. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> oh, do you think maybe that's why... Deathstroke was threatening to shoot the guy's penis off because of uh, the <laughs> the Osiris myth. He's gonna go toss that uh, that ding dong in a river, and then uh, Seth's gonna find it, and there'll be a whole to do. Yeah. Ah, uh, now I love this comic book. It's great. Yeah. All right. You're welcome. Corey, were you able to find any timestamps in this issue? Gosh, not really. The closest I got, and it was kind of a grasping of straws, was the outfit of the attacker from that unfortunate scene with the sexual assault. But his outfit, like, this is very early 90s, Mm -hmm. so it was kind of more 80s, but he had on what looked like maybe parachute pants and a members-only jacket. Yeah, I can see that. For in-comic content, I had another semi-fashion-related one which is the fact that the number of mullets in this book is multiplying rapidly at this point. Previously, we just had Joey with a mullet. Now, Terry's got a mullet. Yeah, but Terry... Donna's got a mullet. Terry has a disappearing mullet. Well, he's, he's not ready to commit to it. You know how Terry is. Am I right? You think he got a little, like, a rubber band and pulled into a really shitty little mullet ponytail? Probably. I mean, he is a professor in the early 90s. Oh, Terry, Terry, you're... Oh, God, I don't like him. I don't like him either. But you also see, 
Dick has a mullet growing now, too. So the mullet count has gone from one to, I don't know, either four or three in a Schrodinger's mullet, in the case of Terry Long. So the increasing mullet count, I think, is a pretty good timestamp. Although really more for comic books than the rest of society. I feel like by the 90s, the mullet was starting to go out. It was more of an 80s thing. But in comic books, you start seeing every character given a mullet at this point. Which is a similar thing I noted in the last issue, when the 90s start, the art starts looking very 90s indeed. But I feel like what I consider a 90s comic book aesthetic is more in line with an 80s action movie aesthetic, where the muscles are getting bigger, the dude's shirts are getting tinier. Like, that's a very, like, Stallone, Schwarzenegger action hero type of thing. By the 90s, you're moving into more of a Bruce Willis type action hero model, where the action heroes are looking more like regular folks. So you get action stars like Bruce Willis and Nicolas Cage and stuff like that. You still do see some of the big bulky, like super muscly guys, but in comics, everybody's muscles are getting bigger for at least a few years after this point. That's a a little bit complicated timestamp, but I get it. Sorry about that. It's okay. The other timestamp, which I do want to point out, is maybe peripheral and stuff that I don't think you would have in your copy because you read the digital version. But the fold-out ad for Clive Barker's Nightbreed definitely makes the Clive Barker reference drop in the last issue stand out as product placement, which is weird, frankly. I didn't know they did that in comic books, where there would be product placement within the text of the book and in the ads. Yeah, me neither. I mean, other than, I guess, the uh, sponsorship from the Canadian maple syrup lobby that mm-hmm. we had in early Teen Titans, right. and then uh, free Cokes. Sure. The pole vaulting lobby uh-huh. had uh, their fingers in a lot of pies back then. Oh, yeah. Uh, magic twanger industry. <laughs> but, no, seeing it followed up by an actual advert is weird. It is. There's another ad in here that is very early 90s specific, which is for a new graphic novel called Batman Digital Justice, which is a computer-generated art comic book that really looks like it is a comic book that is made by and for the Super Nintendo, possibly the GameCube, but really that level of art. It says that it is uh, made using the latest advances in 3D imaging. High-definition laser printing, lifelike high-resolution graphics. I mean, if you know a lot of people that are just made out of polygons. And my favorite feature, combining all these advances with a computer palette of more than 16 million colors. Oh. And there is a very early 90s computer-generated image of Batman in there. He looks like he stepped out of the game Virtua Fighter. Mm-hmm. That is... Again, a bit of a cheat as a timestamp, but I didn't want to let it go unremarked upon because it is, in fact, remarkable. Yes. And so I have remarked. (laughs) Good job. Because I was able to. Uh Uh-huh. Corey, every issue of a Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Titans, until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? 
Oh boy. This one was a struggle in both categories because there was contenders for best. I initially wanted to go with Starfire because ultimately she killed the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Right? The most effective, hands down, in terms of wrapping things up. I felt weird about the whole cop thing that she got kind of pulled into. And I mean, I guess I get it. Like you're chasing a bad guy and everything's. Right. You think you're shooting at a bat monster and it turns out it's just a guy jumping over a wall. Yeah. So she could be in the lead, but actually ended up going with Cyborg because he was able to withstand the psychological manipulation that evil Raven was doing Mm -hmm. making him think he was getting unraveled and uh also on one hand it's a little annoying like his coaching of starfire he's like yeah just shoot those guys don't even don't even worry about it she's like dude i i am you don't need to (laughs) yeah coach me but you know he was trying to be a team player i appreciate that i had him in strong contention as my aqualad in this issue i almost went with him i almost went with troya for getting out of her hospital bed and being like So you guys need some of my blood? Maybe that'll help. Again, that didn't quite make sense because the reason they could use her blood was because she was all the way human. And I didn't know that she was all the way human because didn't the Titans do something to her and make her part God or something? But I guess that doesn't affect her blood. So good for her. Although they had also previously been through a thing where Raven has not quite human blood, so they couldn't give her blood transfusion whatever she gets out of bed says have some blood and it saves the day good Good for her Mm -hmm. but ultimately i went with nightwing as my aqualad because he had the good sense to not have anything to do with this fucking story (laughs) and he shows up at the end and he's like yeah i'm getting out of the shower maybe i'll help tim drake be robin now and i'm looking forward to reading that story perhaps foolishly Mm. But, uh, yeah, for having the good sense to have nothing to do with this nonsense, Nightwing is my Aqualad. Conversely, the Beast Boy category was a real race to the bottom. Anytime Deathstroke is an option, he's going to be up there, and he was a real fucking creep in this issue. Beast Boy really backslid into his weird objectifying of Starfire, specifically using Lucky Strike ads and saying, so round, so firm, so fully packed when talking about her butt. He only said the first part, but it, the second one was implied. Yeah, the, the fully packed was implied. Ugh. He said round and firm, though. Yeah. And you got Speedy continuing to be a creep and uh, just skipping out on the redemption part of his redemption arc. I don't know. I guess I'm going to go with Deathstroke, but no, nah, fuck it. I'm going to go with Beast Boy. He really backslid. And I uh, got my hopes up the last couple issues that he was going to be okay. And then maybe he's just putting on a fucking show for his new buddy Deathstroke. But uh, he's back to being a turd. Yeah, I had the same three in contention. And uh, for me, Deathstroke's fake like morality about like, I was bringing the medicine. Eh. And uh, liking the smell of fresh human blood. He's a real creep. For breaking a window, leaving a mess for people to clean up. For shooting into the ceiling of an occupied, probably, building. Mm-hmm. He got the nod. I think those are all valid reasons. I did not give him the nod in part because I think he got in a pretty good backhanded zinger on Beast Boy. And let's talk about that now. 
Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo do you want to talk about? I had the fleeing, maybe Egyptian god shapeshifting animal, but probably not aliens, referring to all of humanity as uh, just being so interminably ignorant that they were disgusting. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty good singer on the whole <laughs> planet. Yep, tough but fair. They roasted us! Oof. Zing! Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I alluded to it just now, but uh, I think my favorite zinger in this comic is one that immediately pays off after Deathstroke saves Starfire by shooting the rat monster that's sneaking up on her. He says, watch your rear, Starfire. Never know what's crawling up behind you. And Beast Boy immediately says, no prob. If she won't watch it, I'll gladly volunteer. So round, so firm. Oh, are you okay, Corey? I saw that as Deathstroke saying, uh, Starfire, w- w- cover your ass because there's a fucking creep looking at it. You, know, you never know what's crawling up behind you. I saw him referring to Beast Boy. Yeah, you could, you could read it that way, for sure. And I chose to. Well, okay. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? So, along with uh, Terry Long's disappearing mullet, he also had a plaid shirt getup, some racy pants, and for some reason it reminded me of the brawny paper towel. Oh, I can see like that. Lumberjack guy. Yeah, he's, he has a similar vibe that he's projecting there. Partly the plaid shirt. I think he would be very pleased to hear you say that. That's unfortunate, but <laughs> that's what I had. I had the garb of a side character who only appears in one panel, but when Scourge is doing his human pinata with Deathstroke, we see a guy, he's the only apparent human in the image, who is flanking two of the rat monsters and Scourge. He is dressed in all black and has really big, like, bug goggles on. He's only in that one panel. We don't know who he is or what he's doing there. He looks a lot like a revamping of Animal Man that was done at around this time, where he had a black leather outfit that he wore with the big goggles. And he also looks kind of like Acton Baby era Bono. Mm. So I think maybe either Animal Man or Bono is shadowing Scourge here, like maybe part of a training situation. Yeah, I was wondering uh, what that guy's story was. The only real mystery in this issue. Mm. Who is that guy? Nobody knows. Probably Bono. Probably. Talking to Scourge and being like, okay, so you want to replace all of these, you know, he's got a Bono accent. He's saying, okay, so you want to replace all of the Earth with Egyptian god rat monsters, right? But what if also we put one of our songs on everyone's iPhone? And Scourge is like, no, even we're not that evil. It's nefarious. Bono, stop it. You're out of the gang. We may be Egyptian god rat monsters probably, but we're not scum. Didn't mean to bug you. That's a pretty good Bono. That's a pretty good Bono, Corey. Thanks. Nice. Corey, let's have ourselves a Battle of the Bear. 
What band names were you able to find in the text of this comic book? Yeah, so the one that immediately jumped out at me was U2, but that's already a band, so... Oh, no. Yeah. But I had a couple, actually. The first one is a duo. I think they're rappers from Seattle, maybe. Okay. And uh, they go by Dingy and Thick. <laughs> I like it. Uh-huh. Dingy and Thick. Yeah, I think I think that paints a pretty good picture. <laughs> like a grunge era rapper. Yeah, like maybe 90s, yeah, 90s, like 90s, 90s it's a duo, right? One's dance. Right. Do you think that might be what on the Judgment Night soundtrack if Sir Mix-a-Lot and Mudhoney had decided to stay <laughs> together as a band, they might have gone by the name Dingy and Thick. It it's Mark Arm is is Dingy and Sir Mix-a-Lot is the thick side of it. Yeah. All right. I think that's a very good band name. Thank you. My first one, I think I may have used it in the past one, but we didn't get to it because we had an accord at one point. But uh, Plague Serum seems like that would be like a maybe a new metal band. Oh, yeah. I don't think I would like them very much, but sounds like it might actually be a band. Uh, Another option I had was the more perhaps cerebral, ethereal, endless corridor. Oh, it's like the opposite of the doors, so I would like them. <laughs> Are there any doors? No, just an endless corridor. What if it's just all doors covers, though? You just have to ruin everything, don't you? Why can't I just have one nice thing, Corey? Knock, knock. Who's there? Jim Morrison! Ah! Fuck, you get me with that every time! <laughs> what other band names were you able to find? The other band name that I had was Incandescent Fire. Ooh, Incandescent Fire is pretty good. What kind of music do you think they play? Um, probably rock music. Yeah, I could see them playing rock music. Yeah, they play They're rock music. They're a rock music band? Yeah, they are a rock music band. Hmm. Are they humans from Earth? Well, of course they're humans from Earth. What other kinds of humans are there? Well, I don't know. I just want to make sure that this rock music band is of, of Earth humans. So, uh, yeah, I I think Incandescent Fire would be a very good Earth-human rock music band. That is what they play, Earth-human rock music. My other option for a band is Lanier's Creatures. Oh. And this is a band fronted by former Detroit Piston Bob Lanier. (laughs) How did I know? And it is made up of all professional athletes who are acclaimed musicians. Bob Lanier is not, but he's a very charismatic man. Would have made a great front man. Mm -hmm. uh, Center, so he's a bigger guy than a lot of people. Very imposing image on the stage, if nothing else. And, you know, he put the band together. Mm -hmm. So it's Lanier's Creatures. They do all horror-themed songs. There's a local band called the Edgar Allan Posers that only play on Halloween and do covers of horror-themed songs or vaguely horror-adjacent music. And uh, Lanier's Creatures kind of ripped off their gimmick. Mm. But they feature uh, Wayman Tisdale on the bass. He's a former Sacramento Kings player, multiple-time All-Star, who is an acclaimed jazz bass player. What? He he was. He actually died very young, tragically. But uh, Mm. this band presupposes that he did not die, in fact, Uh in his... Early 40s, I believe. On lead guitar, we have former New York Yankee, Bernie Williams. I don't like that he's a Yankee, but he's a very good guitar player. Wow. And rounding out the band on drums, my friend and yours, Doug Flutie. 
who plays drums in a band with his brother called the Flutie Brothers. (laughs) So there you have Lanier's Creatures doing their covers of, like, you know, the Monster Mash and shit like that. Wow. That is my final option. What do you think is the best band name we got going on here? I don't know which one is the best name, but Lanier's Creatures has the best story. Okay, I'm fine with going with that. You think they're even better than your Earth Human Rock Music band <laughs> Incandescent Fire? I think Incandescent Fire's probably got a little bit more of a repeatable ring to it. Mm. But, I don't know. Even Doug Flutie couldn't believe what they had done. <laughs> yeah, I think if we chose anything but Lanier's Creatures, Doug Flutie wouldn't be able to believe what we'd done, so we'd better go with Lanier's Creatures. All right. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? I went with Deathstroke for a few reasons. One was opting to enter an apartment building through a closed window by breaking it. Mm -hmm. For not finding the entrance to the corridor that led to the bad guy hideout, and instead just punching a wall to get to it. Yeah, when you're on what is ostensibly a mission of subterfuge. Uh Uh-huh. And for when you have refenestrated into somebody's apartment before they have a chance to say anything, shouting at them, Just shut up! (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's kind of more of a jerk move than a dramatic move, but... (laughs) It could be both. Yeah. And then also human pinataing and um, threatening ding-dong shots of the senator. Yeah. That's pretty dramatic. It is pretty dramatic. So, do you think the senator was one of the rat monsters, or was he one of the rat Renfields, which gets completely ignored in this issue, that they were part of the plan? His eyes are red, which means he could be either? He could also just be kind of high. No, they were, like, all red. Oh, okay. Like, rat monster red. I don't know, he had more of a Renfield vibe, though. I mean... If he could turn into a rat monster, it's confusing that he didn't. That's true. And because this book really sticks to a theme of things being sensible, mm-hmm. that's probably... He, he must have been one of the Renfields that are yep. largely ignored in this issue. Must be. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a solid choice as president of the drama club. I actually went with Starfire. It, it was just... One scene that I feel like she was particularly dramatic in, they show up and Starfire starts blasting people with her magic space fire. And she says, Cyborg, don't hold me back. And Cyborg's just like, nobody's telling you to. Do whatever you gotta. Okay, the dialogue doesn't quite match up. Don't hold me back. No one's telling you to. That's like, a, you have a good meal too to a server and there are a few instances of that in this book where like the response doesn't match with the setup but uh also just don't hold me back who said i was going to why are why did you introduce this concept yeah that was silly and pretty dramatic Hmm. Well, Corey, I just have one final question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, as this is somewhat arbitrarily determined at this point, 
1991, and the month of our Lord February, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot! All right, so you know how Aqualad loves the uh, Breakin' movie franchise? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because of his love of that movie, he had established a, uh, and I can't remember if this has come up in past Wapoots, but a, a pen pal exchange with uh, Michael Chambers, Boogaloo Shrimp, who played mm-hmm. um, Turbo. I believe we've mentioned that. Okay. Possibly he feels more of an affinity towards him than he would Shabadoo because of the shrimp connection. Exactly. The aquatic theme. Exactly, yeah. And so that uh, pen pal exchange blossomed into a, a, a real friendship, which in turn led to uh, some dance lessons. Oh. And so, yeah, he was learning how to do, like, the dance with the mop. Oh, that's a good time. Yeah, and, and, and a few others. So... That is the reason why, on February 20th, 1991, Aqualad attended the Grammys. Ooh. Because he wanted to know if his buddy, Michael Boogaloo Shrimp Chambers, who was actually the... They didn't have green screens back then. I think they had blue screens. And he was the dancer that MC Scat Cat from the Paula really? Abdul video... Yeah. Opposites Attract was modeled after the animations were layered over a, a blue screen of... Of the Boogaloo Shrimp dancing. I had no idea. And it won Best Video. At those Good trainers. for him. Yeah. And so Aqualad was just thrilled. Chambers was thrilled. They went out and had some drinks. They celebrated. Nice. Yeah, it was a good time. You'll learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky. If you listen to this show. Uh-huh. Learn lots of things. Very educational. We've been over it. That's why we get those big education grants. I know. That's why we're such fat cats. Is that what people who get grants are called? Yeah, I think people who get educational grants are usually thought of as big Washington fat cats. Smoking our cigars. Uh Uh-huh. Enjoying all that sweet grant money. You know what I'm sick of? Caviar. But what else am I going to eat? Am I right? Just big handfuls of it all the time. It's not going to eat itself. Nope. Although that is something that I actually have been looking into purchasing. Some self-eating caviar. Because, uh, what else am I going to do with all this grant money? Wow, that's a, that's a good use of it. Yeah. Well, that may be one thing that Aqualad was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that he was up to. See, Aqualad had been visiting some friends of his from across the pond when he heard on the radio something that he found a little bit disturbing. The song, The Bart Man, off of The Simpsons Sing the Blues by Bart Simpson, <laughs> was in February of 1991 the number one song in the UK. Oh, my. And Aqualad, that just didn't sit quite right with him. He remembered Bart Simpson describing himself as a underachiever and proud of it, and Aqualad felt that children should have a better role model than that. So he decided to make a little journey. He wanted to really embark on an upliftment tour for our nation's youth, And what better place to start than the Simpsons' own hometown of Springfield? Now, there are a lot of different Springfields in the U.S., and he didn't know which one it was, so he just looked up the most prominent Springfield, which was Springfield, Massachusetts. So he journeyed there and brought a whole bunch of t-shirts that he thought would really help inspire the nation's youth, and maybe even Bart Simpson himself. So he made a bunch of red t-shirts, that had printed on them, always bet on yourself. And he brought those to Springfield, Massachusetts. 
And that is how he accidentally befriended Pete Rose. Because <laughs> right at that time, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, was voting to ban Pete Rose from the Hall of Fame for betting on baseball games. Hey there, this is Editor Hub here in the future. Oh, past Hub, you stupid idiot. The Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. The Basketball Hall of Fame is in Springfield, Massachusetts, which you should know because you've been to the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, to be fair, Pete Rose is also not in the Basketball Hall of Fame, although bizarrely he is in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Anyway, back to you, Past Hub. And Pete Rose's defense was that, well, he always bet on himself. So he was obviously trying to win those games. So why should he be banned from the Baseball Hall of Fame? He saw Aqualad handing out those t-shirts and thought, ah, a kindred spirit. And that is how Pete Rose was accidentally befriended by Aqualad. Wow. Congratulations on finally being able to use one of the every single day of every single month Pete Rose things that's in that, <laughs> that website. I think they just found a really unflattering picture of Pete Rose and wanted to use it as many times as possible. He's, every time I look the thing up on onthisday.com, Pete yeah. Rose is in there with that unflattering photo. Yeah. Every yeah. time. Well, I got, I got a chance to use one. Nice job. I feel like I may have before. <laughs> I can't be expected to remember all or any of the things that I've said on this show. That'd be too much. No, why should I hold myself to a higher standard than Marf Wolfman? Or Pete Rose. Or Pete Rose. <laughs> well, Corey, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk out some of my frustration with this comic book with you. It was, it was therapeutic. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. We'll be back next week to talk some Defenders, and in a couple of weeks to uh, see... Tim Drake gets some Robin training from Nightwing in an issue that I am frankly concerned about. I'm happy to move into the next topic on this, but the upcoming blurb for this next issue says, Bet you're expecting part four of our four-part Terminator Plague story. Well, okay, that's there, but the new Titan 65 also begins a new story. Tim Drake, the new Robin, learns what it means to be a partner. There's more of this story? Oh, man. I'm going to assume that's a typo. This seems like it is so very wrapped up at this point. Nowhere to go but up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get good. Corey. Yeah. What did you say at the beginning of this comic book that you should do about your optimism? I should um, flush it down the toilet? I don't remember. What yeah, I, I don't know. Something like that. Okay. And just that it is, you know, yeah. bad and <laughs> it hurt you so many times in the past. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I got a... I got a good feeling about this I one. A, I don't. I have a bad <laughs> feeling. <laughs> trying to make it better, but... We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. If you'd like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up The Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on the social media a little bit, so 
you can hunt and peck around and find us in there somewheres. But hey, if you can't find us on the socials media, there is one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I think I'm going to have a, a repeat of uh, what I did last night, which was great for winding down the evening, which was eating a giant-sized slice of the delicious strawberry rhubarb pie with a little bit of extra ginger that you made me for my birthday. Aw, shucks. Washing it down with a fine bourbon and watching a Top Chef episode. That sounds like a pretty good time. It was relaxing as hell. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I think I am going to... I got some more pie. Oh, shit, then I'll join you. That sounds pretty good. All right. I didn't get to eat any of that pie. I'm glad to hear it came out really good. Excellent. If you would like to help support the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland and make a monthly donation. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that's up there. There is the donor-only podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a whole bunch of videos about classic comic books and just other stuff that's up there that you can check out that is exclusive content for our patrons. It is through those contributions that we are able to keep doing the show, so thank you so much for making them and therefore making it possible for us to keep doing the show. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, is there even a way that they can do that? Yeah, sure. You just need to uh, call your local senator and say, are you a Egyptian god rat? Nope. Shoot him in the ding ding. (laughs) That's yeah. No. Okay. Let me start over. No, it's not a good way to support the show by shooting your local senator in the ding ding. Although, depending on who your local senator is, may not be the worst thing in the world. Didn't hear it here. But uh, no, probably a more effective thing to help the show might be telling somebody about the show in a way that would encourage them to also enjoy the show. Well, how would they do that? Um, you could be having dinner at a fancy restaurant. Oh. Or, I don't know, eating a burrito in a park. That seems like something that everyone, from the richest of astronauts to the poorest of guys who clean up elephant poop at the circus, could do. Yeah, so if you find yourself in any of those situations, on um, you know, just say, hey, I the show made me laugh. You like to laugh? Maybe listen to it. Corey, do you think there could be a movie about a group of elephant poop cleaners up who have to go into space and become astronauts to, uh, I don't know, maybe they find like an asteroid that's made out of elephant poop and it's easier for them to train elephant poop cleaners to be astronauts than it is to train astronauts how to clean up elephant poop? Um, I did see a movie once called Space Camp. Mm. So, yes, such a thing is possible. Good to know. Yeah, there's bad space movies, that's my point. Yeah, there are some bad movies about space. The other thing you could do is to leave a review for the show wherever you got your podcast from. Corey, could that review be spelled out in elephant poop? No. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, no, we don't have the technology for that yet. So instead you could say something like, It's better than elephant poop, five stars. I, the richest of astronauts, 
like this show much better than Elephant Poop, which, I will say, given an elephant's diet, is hardly the stinkiest of poops. So that's a pretty good podcast. Where, where did the... I don't know. I said elephant poop, and now I can't stop saying it. Do you watch a documentary, or...? Yeah, I watched a documentary about elephant poop. Of course I did. Okay. I don't know. I was trying to think of professions that are not held in high social esteem, and the first thing that I thought of was that one scene from Mr. Show where Bob Odenkirk makes extra money by kissing the elephant's butts, but that seemed a little bit too specific, so... <sighs> Uh, that led to elephant poop. That and, explains it. Yeah. I knew there was a reason you brought that up. Yeah, no, there's a very reasonable explanation. Yeah, no. It's because I am a Egyptian god space alien <laughs> who has blood that's made out of gel, and that blood is telepathic, and even after I'm dead, can call out to other people and tell them to inject my blood into their veins, which will kill them, but then they will rise from the dead after three days like... I don't know, somebody. There's got to be some character who has risen from the dead after three days, even if I can't think of anybody who. Lazarus? No, that was four days. Um, vampires? No, that's usually after a single day. Um, Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, leads to elephant poop. Yeah, so just uh, type all that up into the computer and click the fifth star and... Uh... Straight on till morning. There you go. It was therapeutic. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Can you say that a little bit louder? You're welcome. <laughs> you say that's, that a little bit less weird? That's my therapist voice. I'm a bad <laughs> therapist. And for reasons no one can explain, I did... And for reasons no one can explain, I did... <laughs> Finley, come on. And for reasons... Oh my god. <laughs> And four. That that's not gonna sound like a <laughs> sentence. <laughs>